Welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, Dr. Gordon Wood reflects on his 53-year career as a historian of early America. As a friendly reminder, there is still time to register for our January 18th Ford Evening Book Talk, featuring Leah Berman and Jeremy Bernard. For more information, check out our website at mountvernon.org slash podcast, and be sure to follow us on social media at GW Books. And now, we join Dr. Douglas Bradburn, the President and CEO of George Washington's Mount Vernon, in a conversation with Gordon Wood. All right, well, welcome, everybody. This is Doug Bradburn, and I'm joined now by Gordon Wood, a famous professor from Brown University who's won every award for his historical work, has stood astride the field uh, for the last 50 years in early American (laughs) history, and uh, I'm delighted to say he's here at Mount Vernon uh, giving the last of three lectures, the Gayhart Gaines Lecture Series. So, Gordon, welcome to Mount Vernon. Glad to be here. Well, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, the last two lectures were uh, were received, I think, to great acclaim by the audience. You have a friendly audience here at Mount Vernon. That's right. They're always <laughs> friendly here. Do you remember your first trip to George Washington's estate? Uh, you mean as a lecturer? No, as a as a human being. Well, as actually, a tourist was, or? I probably came uh, twenty years ago as a, just a visitor. Mm. But um, no, I remember coming here giving a lecture on George Washington, mm. probably fifteen yeah. to twenty years ago. What do you think of the new library? Oh, it's wonderful it's a, yeah. for having fellows and so yeah. on. Uh, it just it's given a, a kind of educational. Uh, cast to the whole, in, the, the entire institution, which I think was much needed. Yeah, well, that's good. I mean, I think the, so I've been here four years now, and the library is going strong, and, uh, you know, there weren't many fellowships probably when you were coming up as a graduate student in the same that's way right. that right now. There were none of the sort that now exist yeah. in, throughout the country, really. Yeah, you had, uh, you won the big, uh, I guess, is it called the Fellowship or it's something <clears throat> at the William Mary at the Omaha Hundred Institute? Right. It was called the Institute at that point, yeah. uh, and that was 1964, yeah. a, a two-year uh, fellowship, which was very rewarding. Um, I know you overlapped. We had two fellows, so it was always fun. Yeah. And there's a congregation there of early Americanists that make uh, makes for a nice... Uh, uh, community of scholars. And so when you were there, you were working on your book, The Creation of the American Republic. Correct, which was my dissertation. Was it still a dissertation then, or was it was this a postdoc fellowship? It so was a postdoc. I had finished the dissertation, yeah. but I, uh, and the argument stayed the same, but I filled it out, enriched it in those two years. Well, it got long, that's for certain. Well, it was always long. I don't think presses long. allow people to write books that size. <laughs> it was long even as a, uh, a dissertation. <laughs> Yeah, you and I have personally talked about this before, but I don't know if it's been recorded. But uh, what's striking, I think, to a lot of people who understand that period was that, you know, Bernard Balin was working on his uh, his uh, origins of the American Revolution. He'd done the pamphlets and the introduction to the pamphlets. But you were sort of working on your own, not. You know, you're not sort of following along what he's doing at that time. No, I, I didn't know. You know, I heard his lectures, mm-hmm. uh, but I uh, uh, I didn't know what he was doing. I was working off of uh, the notion. I started with the state constitutions, yeah. which he had suggested, actually, in mm-hmm. a lecture, saying there hasn't really a good book on the state constitution mm-hmm. making. So I started with that. Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of research around 76, 77, 
And then I decided, well, maybe I should look into what happened 10 years later with the federal constitution mm. just to see if anything had changed. Because I had this notion, which really came from, from Balin. He said, you want to see how change through time. You start point A and you look at point yeah. B farther along in time and you say, what it's happened? Different. Yeah. What's different? But and, yeah, is that great essay in defining a historical problem. Right. You have to find some disconnect right. and in so the record. Yeah. What I found was that the arguments around 1787-88 were very different mm. from the ones in 76. So suddenly I had my problem. There you go. How yeah. do you get from A to B? Why did things change? Yeah. And that became the dissertation. That's a brilliant the, the essay, I don't know, I don't remember it now. It's maybe it's on the historian's craft or something like that he wrote. But that notion of finding a historical problem out of the records right. is such a key key thing right. to, to to find a, a, a project. Uh, and I think a lot of graduate students go into it nowadays sort of starting with um, really coming at it from the wrong angle. You know, right. they, they need to find a problem before a thesis. Right, right. Yeah. So that evolved. So that's really fascinating to hear. So that's how you defined your problem, and then you decided to read every pamphlet. I just demand. read everything that was available, and, and <laughs> yeah. it can be done yeah. uh, because that was not there was an explosion of, of, yeah. of things. Of course, mm. when you looked at the bibliography uh, that exists, um, I've forgotten the name of it now. That goes from 1637 to yeah. 1800. Uh, yeah, the Evans. Uh, the Evans. Yeah. Bibliography. Early American imprints. Sixty-five percent. Mm. Of all the publications between 1637 and 1800 occurred in the last 35 years uh, of the 18th century. Between 1765 and 1800, yeah, that's the, 75% of everything. Mm. It was an explosion of publications, obviously coinciding with the revolution. And so, I mean, all of us, I think, want our first books to be, you know, uh, transformative in their way and influential. I mean, could you anticipate it no. all? I had no impact? anticipation of the republicanism taking off. Yeah. It really benefited from the politics that I had mm. no awareness of, from the politics of the left and from the right. From uh. the right, of course, there was the founding, and this is republicanism, and they looked back to antiquity, and they yeah. thought that this was natural law being fulfilled and so on. Yeah. But from the left... People were looking for an alternative to Marxism, yeah. which seemed to be dead. And here we have Madison et al. And also offering an Republicanism. To individualism, right? Well, they, they, they were countering else. the liberal individualism, the Louis yeah. Hartz problem. Right, yeah. And so you have now uh, Republicanism, which puts an emphasis on the public good, mm. the communal good. Mm. And I had uh, law professors and political scientists getting in touch with me. Telling me that I was their savior, I was going to save their, their, and this was from the left and from the right. Yeah. So it was an incredible moment. And Republicanism went on for, well, a decade, two mm. decades, and then finally died of its own weight. It was just being is a monster that was taking over. Yeah. Now it became really scholastic. I, I, I had the misfortune of being in graduate school at the time, where I had to uh, learn all the the different versions of Republicanism <laughs> between Pocock and Gordon Wood and all these other Republicanisms. And I know that. Uh, in, in, the people yourself, you weren't of that school. No. You were never trying we had, to define we, a type certainly of. Certainly, Balin and I had no yeah. awareness that we yeah. were concocting anything like this uh, <laughs> monster that was yeah. running. The, and I'm not sure if John Pocock did either. But at any rate, it yeah. was picked up by people, and they began mm -hmm. finding republicanism everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and if, well into the 19th century, it yeah. became a big thing until it just died, and then it was taken over by race, class, gender. Yeah, but for a while there, it was republicanism, and then, and then the study of ideologies more generally became a very potent way to sort of understand 
Well, it was a way to connect to the social with the intellectual ideology. Right. So, well, Balin's you know, book, uh, yeah. The Ideological Origins of the Revolution, had a profound influence. But then people turned against that because it seemed to be all ideas and there was no mm. substance. Yeah. I don't think that was true. I think Balin simply, he was writing about the ideas, but he didn't, wasn't arguing that only ideas mattered. Yeah. But well, that's the way the you profession had to do is operates. look at some of his other work to recognize that right, he was right, interested right, in right, social right. history. Of course, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, well, fascinating. So you've been here at Mount Vernon and you've given a, a series of lectures uh, looking at the founding and somewhat uh, trying to think about it as a transformative event. Oh, yes, I think it was. I think it's the most important event in American history, bar none, because it created, uh, not only legally created the United States, but it created almost everything we believe in, and mm. highest aspirations and, and our noblest ideas. But I think it also made changes in the in the society, and, and as I've talked in these lectures, one has to do, one lecture was on equality, mm. which is a the most potent ideological force in our history. The second was on the private-public distinction, mm. which I don't think has been focused on very yeah, much as, by as historians. Yeah. And then the third is on the origins of capitalism, yeah. uh, which I think comes out of the revolution, uh, too. So uh, I think it was a very transformative event. Yeah. I mean, the world is very different after 1800 than mm. it was before. Yeah, but that, and that course came through most powerfully in your work, The Radicalism of the American Revolution. 1991 was the original 92. publication date? 92. Give me a break. I mean, yeah, what a okay, date's that was matter. Close, right. you know, come on. Uh, but, uh, and it's, uh, it's had a powerful impact, certainly. But that book, um, in, that, in that sense, very similar to these lectures in which you're kind of positing a pre-revolutionary world dominated by monarchy, and the hierarchies of monarchy, and the, the, kind of the assumptions of the way the world should work that get sort of overthrown. By the end of the period, you've got whole different understandings of how things should be. Right. No, I, 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 these lectures I've drawn from, yeah. from that work that I did for the Radicalism book. But expanded in the in the Empire of Liberty book, I think, right, in, through right. the political changes of the 1790s. Yeah, I, I think it's essentially a middle-class revolution. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that uh, Alan Taylor has actually conceded that point mm -hmm. in his big uh, survey, uh, the, mm -hmm. the uh, recent narrative history he wrote of the revolutions. Right. Uh, and I, I'm not sure that other scholars seem to deny any transform transforming effect, but he seems to ex accept that notion, and I think that's true. The revolution really did make a difference. Now, well, some people will say, well, like capitalism, oh, it would have happened anyway. People say that about what happened in France, yeah. but we, we don't, we can never know since the revolution can't be taken out of the process. Yeah. Uh, it's all part of it, and, and therefore I think the revolution is very much a part of what, uh, what transformed the well, some of the so some scholars who would deny sort of the uh, in your phraseology the radicalism of the American Revolution, they would say uh, maybe I'll paraphrase is that that you know this was a the revolution the, the war for independence was a settler revolt of these settler colonies and uh, you know it, it really uh, it didn't change much basically these settler colonies becoming states wasn't much different from the colonies in the British Empire. And demographics say that they were just going to keep expanding across the continent, and you would have ended up with 
you know, Canada basically writ large? Well, that may be so. We'll never know. Uh, Certainly, demographically, the uh, colonies were expanding at a fantastic rate, and uh, there were things happening that uh, overwhelmed, in a sense, the colonial rebellion, that, that somehow that just that's an incident in the process. Yeah. Yeah. That's not the revolution. Yeah. This this break from Great Britain, there, there's a, a momentous kind of demographic force that's mm. operating, and that probably would have occurred uh, anyhow. That was happening, which played into the revolution, which mm. gave it a kind of impetus that it otherwise would not have had, and, and transcended the kind of debate, so to speak, the imperial debate. Yeah, the constitutional... Uh, debate over who's in charge. Well, yeah, but then you have uh, the emergence of middle-class people mm. uh, who are asserting themselves in ways against this elite that frightened elitists that led to the formation of the Constitution. Mm. In that sense, I accept the progressive interpretation of the Constitution. Yeah. It is... Well, going back, to radic- uh, going back to the uh, creation of the American Republic, you... You make that case. I mean, you're making a case about a kind of right. reaction against. Well, that's why uh, I had uh, licentiousness. I, I had people from Wisconsin schools <laughs> saying that. Well, was I with them or not? Uh, uh, Merrill Jensen, yeah, Merrill who Jensen's, were yeah. well, another who person who studied the me. state constitution. Yeah, well, he yeah. he actually questioned me because he reviewed the book and he was puzzled because I thought I was a Balin student. I had to be mm. an idealist, right. and and he says, uh, uh, you know, just I just want to know one thing. He says, are you with me or against me? And I said, Merrill. <laughs> with you all the way and uh-huh. he uh, he was puzzled by the, because I did suggest a social component which I unfortunately uh, but Baylor's never accepted that <laughs> that part of my interpretation well we can't all agree I guess uh, right. uh, well uh, fascinating so so alright so we're separating out the war and the revolution so the revolution is bigger broader than the war for sure. independence it's bigger than the constitutional uh, conflict and of course a lot of historians scholars I mean you know, you think of going back to Jack Green's early work and Emory Evans and some others will say the revolution is a constitutional event. It, that's it. Stop with all this other. It's not a social movement. But you seem to go back to the J. Franklin Jameson kind of. Definitely. Yeah. And, and, and did he, did his work influence your. No, I, because he had, was so yeah. slight. I mean, he only yeah. had, had suggestions here and there, but certainly yeah. he was on the right track. Yeah. Uh, all you have to do is study. One of the problems was that the way the profession was divided up, mm. people were either colonialist revolution or they were early republic. It's still a problem. Yeah. And therefore, they didn't know much about the world that emerged in 1800. Mm. Now, uh, once you taught both, yeah. as I did, then I realized, boy, I'm into a new yeah. Uh, it's a whole new territory. Yeah, there. how do we connect those literatures of the 19th century and the colonial right. period to have them make sense? And, and uh, you still have that problem in the field in which the, the academic training is so narrow, but then you do teach more broadly. Right. And it would be nicer to see more projects that try to Well, I think that's the why the, this joint uh, publication of the yeah. Journal of uh, the Early Republic and the William and Mary Quarterly is interesting because they're trying to somehow bridge the gap. Now, you were involved in the creation of Shear, right? In the, I, well, in the Society I, I, for Historians of the Early American Republic. Right. Or? I went to a meeting uh, with, back <laughs> you in... You find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, no. They, 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 <laughs> it's, it's the... Who's the, the guy who's done a blank on his... Uh, the, the secretary, the first secretary. Uh, yeah. um, you know, he was a... He was a undergraduate at Harvard uh, and was devoted to history, and he went on to organize Shear. Mm, he's, okay. he's the, the, the moving force. Um, and and uh, so I watched him. He, he's now recognized as the founder yeah, uh, yeah. Um, of, of Shear. 
But you had an early essay that had an impact, I know, on a lot of uh, scholars was about the uh, the importance of the early republic. Well, that's more. I was, uh, elected, was your one of the presidential address, yeah. uh, lectures, and so on. That yeah. yeah. And yeah. what do you do? You recall that? Uh, well, what was I your sure, argument? Why does the early republic matter? Well, because I think it is a f- realization of what the revolution was about, and mm. it it what happened is I think you began to have a number of books that transcended the usual periodization. Usually people thought in terms of politics. And so you had 1776 to 1787, 1789 were cutoff dates, maybe even 1800. But suddenly people were talking about going from 1750 to 1840. Right. And you began looking at large-scale... Yeah, John Brooke had a great study, I think, of some county and... Right, right. well, he came late to that because there were many that preceded him that actually were opening up this notion that there was a, a... Great transformation. And, of course, that's how society changes over mm. long periods of time. Yeah. We can see that. when you're Yeah, because my, there's always been that false argument about the revolution in terms of if it was a social revolution or not. And if it was a social revolution, how come you don't get the, some kind of immediate change in class structure with but, independence? Right. And well, course, actually, you had quite a yeah. radical change in, in some extent. That's what scared people so much. Yeah. But surely any big cultural changes are, are take time. Generational. We yeah. can see them. I mean, uh, I've lived long enough to realize that the difference between 1950, uh, mm. the 50s, and, and the 2017 is enormous. What's the immediate thing that somebody, uh, a... a um, uh, who's the guy that sleeps through the revolution? Uh, you know, Rip Van Winkle. Yeah, Rip, so if oh, a Rip Van Winkle fell asleep in the 1950s and woke up in 2017, what would they? Yeah. Uh, what right. would the immediate well, thing? Well, I use that Rip Van Winkle uh, to to open the uh, the Empire of Liberty because I think that's what uh, that, that that's what was. What, people felt. Yeah, and that's, that's why it became the most on. popular of Irving's uh, short stories yeah. uh, and a play and used over and over again because they were experiencing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you that's, wake up yeah. and it's George Washington instead of George III on the tavern <laughs> uh, sign. Yeah. And uh, and there were political parties, Federalists, Anti-Federalists. He's bewildered by that. Yeah. Uh, it just didn't make any sense at all. Right. Uh, I mean, I, well, I think that your work more than any other certainly captures or attempts to grapple with that uh, currently, uh, there's a lot of, um, well, the, we talked about uh, Taylor's revolutions with an S. There's multiple revolutions. And, right. you know, does, is that a concept that makes sense to you, well, or do you I can find it less useful? No, it's useful. You yeah. show that there are other things going on at the same time in, in, the, in the new world. Yeah. Uh, but they're not comparable to the American Revolution in their mm-hmm. impact. Uh, yeah. Um, Something that well, the Haitian Revolution was important for the Haitian people and for, yeah. I suppose, uh, for for blacks in 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 uh, Latin America. But as a but compared to the American Revolution, it was small potatoes. And of course, we we Americans didn't recognize the new state until the Civil War right. uh, because it was a black republic, yeah. even though it was the second republic in the New World. Well, it, it does seem to be an interesting question about you know how. How we're defining the revolution, and, and uh, you know, this in, in early American history more generally, is early American history uh, not going to be connected to the national? Is it sort of pre-U.S. history or not? If it's not well, pre-U.S. history, then it seems it could well, be. Well, I anything. think you can actually expand it, though, although yeah. Taylor doesn't do that. He, no. You can bring in the French Revolution because mm-hmm. actually, I had a, a, a note from a, a, an email from a scholar at Florida State who works on the French Revolution, and he's mm-hmm. written a new book on the private 
public distinction oh, right. and a breakdown. Excellent. And yeah. he found, he, he had read my book, mm. and he said, wow, you know, we got something in common. Mm. And so there actually may be something that has to do with the movement to modernity yeah. from a pre-modern to a modern society that is shared by both Americans and, and, and the continent and France. So yeah. if we could begin to link up, I actually wrote a paper, which has never been published, mm. on comparing the French Revolution to the American Revolution, finding the similarities. Yeah. I hadn't realized that the public-private was, was a crucial... Interesting. And this scholar, whose name now escapes me, but uh, he teaches at Florida, Florida State, mm. uh, found something in my book that resonated with him. His mm. book has just come out. And uh, I, I think that should be explored. Instead of just looking at Latin America, think mm. about the whole revolutionary era, the yeah. Western world, so to speak, experiencing... Of which so then the revolutions the become kind of uh, yeah right exactly vision, right of this big but they didn't go far I mean they yeah. saw similarities I, Palmer's book is fantastic when you think about it because he's working with a historiographer he knew nothing about the American Revolution mm. he had to teach himself he was working with a historiography that ran against his thesis Robert Brown right, and exactly. so on, denying yeah. that there was any the, revolution the French in particular <laughs> right. too yeah. and, and and I yeah. thought that he did a marvelous job mm. it was one of the great books uh, yeah. and should still be read uh, I, th I think because he's he captures the common element that took the ambition place. is extraordinary that work I, I uh, so I first met uh, Bernard Balin uh, I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago working with Ted Cook who you know well right I um, Balin had this Atlantic uh, uh, seminars that he was doing right and I and, and you know graduate students will go where the money is so I went you know <laughs> get some money go to Harvard for a couple of weeks and and, and uh, but it was it was incredible. We, the theme was Atlantic revolutions, and we so it had scholars from all over, you know, the Atlantic world, basically all working on their own little revolutions. But right. the idea was to sort of get people comparing and contrasting. And I think that the comparing and contrasting is a great exercise to understand, you know, what's possible in one space and what's not. The problem, order. of course, is the specialization that yeah, we have, exactly. and it's difficult for someone to work up to be too good many enough. fields. Yeah. I mean, how many revolutions can you comprehend? And yeah. I think that's... And the language that was barriers. One of, right. And, yeah. Well, that mm -hmm. too, but mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Palmer uh, was working with a much smaller <laughs> historiography. <laughs> exactly. Uh, nowadays, yeah. the, you'd have to read uh, hundreds of books, actually, mm -hmm. to give any kind of picture of so what's going on in France as well as what's going on in Poland or or Britain or yeah. Italy, and then of course Latin America and North America. I mean, yeah. suddenly you've you've got an overwhelming problem, and that I think inhibits the uh, comparison. But I think this French American yeah. is something to explore. Well, let's uh, let's uh, pause then and think about this public-private distinction that you brought up in your second lecture. Um, so, for for people listening at home, what what is the big deal with the public-private distinction? What is it? Well, it's very hard to explain it short. You know, short. Uh, <laughs> That's uh, all right. Yeah. I mean, I think you have the emergence of a public sphere that we've now been mm -hmm. picking picking up from the political scientists uh, that didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. When you look at how government was handled in the colonies, for example, it was essentially privatized. Right. People, if the city of New York wanted to uh, have your have its streets cleaned, it simply passed a mandate. You must you, each citizen 
each resident must clean the streets in front of his, his home or his shop. Mm. And uh, there were no uh, public works departments or anything of that sort. So you had a, a, a privatization of, of things. The, the public, uh, the government was very weak uh, mm. financially, but not legally. Mm. So it uh, told, you know, it created corporations to do things, gave uh, a group of people the legal right to do certain things. Uh, whether it's to run a college or to run a bridge, so to, to build a bridge and, and or run a toll road or whatever, uh, so everything was handled that way, and and government was handled in a kind of as a kind of private, uh, you you kind of owned the the mm. job you had, right. and and everything was no no records were kept of votes, uh, even when you were elected to a colonial legislature, you didn't know what your representative was doing. He didn't uh, make any speeches that were available. You couldn't know. You didn't hear any debates, and you didn't even know the votes. Mm. Uh, all of that changed with the revolution. Yeah. Uh, suddenly, uh, you have uh, galleries, galleries built so that people could come in and listen to their representatives. Yeah, was it the idea that the people should be in charge? Yeah, well, a whole series driving? of little things, so yeah. all driving with that point that the yeah. people should have some say. Right. And that, of course, is what we've been doing ever since. I mean, democracy yeah. is that, and it's very hard to ratchet back from that. Well, when, I think that, and the point, the point about corporations is a really crucial one, and I guess it'll be related to the rise of capitalism tonight. But uh, uh, this uh, idea that, and and Pauline Mayer did some early work on this, and the, the corporation and the revolution, where uh, you go from this corporate entity that's intended to do a public thing to something that every individual can incorporate. Right, and right. I mean, you have general incorporation laws yeah. eventually so that anybody can get incorporated. Yeah. How you get from one to another is a fantastic story. Yeah. And it's been told, Oscar Hanlon did some yes, very important yeah. work on yeah. that. But uh, there's that just part of this larger mm. chant transformation took place mm. going from a, a private world to a public world yeah. or vice versa. I mean, it's a very complicated story, but it, it, it's the same thing is occurring in France. Mm. Uh, according to this scholar who's book has just uh, uh, come out. If I'd known we were going to talk about this, I would have looked <laughs> well, it up. Well, I'm sorry. Okay. It's fine. Uh, uh, <laughs> but at any rate, he, uh, uh, he, he's making the same point about France, yeah. where the offices are no longer being thought of as belonging to a private person. Yeah. There was that tendency to think of the office, the way the, the throne belonged to the king, suddenly everybody else regarding their offices is belonging mm -hmm. to them too. That has to change mm -hmm. under the transformation that took place between the late 18th century and the early 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, and that's part of the, a, a transformation that we would call the emergence into modernity, I guess, one way of putting it. Well, modernity uh, and the thinking about the coming of modernity was a a very popular in the late 70s, uh, maybe, maybe a little earlier. Modernization, you mean? Yeah, theory? modernization yeah. theory. Well, and also modernity and thinking about what that is and finding right, it. Right. Never seemed to kind of take over the early American field. Now we're now we're talking about post-colonialism, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, go off. with the fashions. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right, so um, now after the radicalism, you, you did more uh, books that are what we would call maybe in the biographical genre. Right. Um, Right. Uh, what made you get interested in biography? Well, because uh, the other two are such sprawling. One's a sprawling intellectual study, and then the other one. I'm not I mean, quite sure, but I, I think I guess I, I I realized that a lot of people wanted to read about these people, so yeah. I decided to. I had written uh, for the New York Review of yeah. books. I had been doing reviewing for 25 years, mm. and I had accumulated 
uh, a whole series of essays yeah. on each of the major founders. Right. And so suddenly uh, I had a publisher who was interested in in this, and so I, I didn't have to do much. I just had to take those essays and and you know tease them a little bit and put them into a yeah. uh, an essay form on on Adams, Jefferson, Franklin, so on. But it seems like in the nineteen nine. I mean, obviously, books on the founders have always been with us. But it does seem like in the nineteen nineties, you get, there was an explosion. You get a that, boom of that, right? right? And Joe you get Ellis this was great doing success right. of Joe Ellis. Uh, uh, Rick Brookhauser has the things and uh, uh, Hamilton, Jefferson, was doing, Washington, uh, his Adams, yeah. and so on. Yeah, right. Um, and you realize, well, I realize that this has become a major problem. The division mm -hmm. that's occurred, which is really unprecedented, uh, back in the fifties when I came of age, mm -hmm. there was no great gap between the what you might call the historians who wrote for the general public and the uh, scholars. I mean. Yeah. Uh, you, you talk about Hofstadter and, and Boston and C.V.N. Woodward. They wrote for two readerships simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, being asked in my orals by about the age of reform, Hofstadter's book. Yeah. Well, it was also a book that sold widely among the general public. That's no longer so. Mm. The historians become quasi-scientific. The monographs talk to each other. It's so specialized that uh, a layman cannot really yeah. read uh, articles in the William and Mary Quarterly any longer. It depends on what else is read before. Yeah. And as a consequence, um, they're writing, the historians, the academics, I would call them, are writing for each other yeah. in a kind of quasi-scientific way, mm -hmm. advancing it's the discipline. Way. Well, they're advancing right. the discipline. There's no doubt that the discipline is much more complicated than it was yeah. earlier. Sophisticated Hist work Right, exactly. On. It's a good thing, but it does tend not to, to appeal to the general public. And as a consequence, there are these people who are not scholars, who have no PhD and have no academic position, who are writing the books yeah. that are being read by hundreds of thousands of people. Well, the barriers to entry uh, are lower for those journalists and others to come into the founding era because a lot of the accessibility of the sources of the the Founders right. Papers projects and others. I mean, I, I, I mean, I bet it's a lot easier than it was in the 50s for a journalist to all of a sudden decide, I'm going to write a book on John Adams. Well, there were uh, a few back then, but yeah. not too many. Uh, yeah. Bruce Catton, I think, sure. and who, who was the woman uh, who was... Uh, well, Barbara Tuckman. Barbara Tuckman. Yeah. Those were the two yeah. dominant forces. Yeah, sort of now popular. you have, uh, in our field alone, early American history, I can, I, I named 20. There's an article I published on the, in the Massachusetts uh, Mass Historical Society publication hmm. pointing this out. About 20 men and women who have no academic connection, hmm. no PhD, are dominating the, the publications. Yeah. And they're being read. And this, I think, is lamentable, well, but it's understandable. The, yeah, there, there is some really, there's no doubt, I mean, we don't have to name names, but there's certainly some bad history that they're selling the most history books out there. Um, and it's that, that some is... Some of that popular history, right, to, right. It's, it's, you know, But some I, of it's very good. I some mean, of Chern it's very good. Chernow's biography of Washington <laughs> is first rate. It's uh, a definitive study. I mean, it was intended to be that. I, and, when I talked to Ron about what he was trying to do with that book, he would even admit that... It's a hard book to read sometimes because he wanted to make sure every, kind of every got, story was in there. Kind of, right. So it's but everything it's, in it's the kitchen good, sink. But it's a definitive study based on the latest, uh, pro, you know, the papers of George Washington Project at right, UVA right. and all that. And, and, it, and it's astonishing when you see some uh, 
some uh, popular books that still are using like the writings of Washington, <laughs> the stuff they're not using, the latest sources, and uh-huh. they're just finding right. things here and there. So you can you can pretty much spot them very quickly. You know what are going to be the good ones, right? But, right. But um, I mean, on, on the other hand, I mean, it does seem like. Uh, I think it, it's somewhat of a golden age for history writing. I mean, there's more Oh, there's more history books being published now than ever before. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's easier to get a history book published than probably it's it was. It's amazing uh, uh, how many history books are yeah. read and how many people are interested in history. Mm-hmm. Um, but the scholars are not meeting that mm. audience mm. because they've got different questions yeah. in mind. And, and as they would say, we're advancing the discipline, and yeah. that's true enough. But it is certainly not the history that's being read. Well, I think a, a lot of um, a lot of us scholars and uh, w- you know would love to write uh, a great bestseller. I mean, it's not like they're against selling books. It's just that they have a hard time making that leap. You're trained as a graduate student in in you know with such a heavy dose of historiography, at least in the American style. You know, there's such a heavy dose of historiography as a way to define the purpose rather than finding a historical problem. And making a story. Well, I was blessed in that I was asked to review books for the New York Review. Yeah. And obviously the New York Review readers are not, uh, they're right. intelligent, they're educated, they're educated yeah. people, but they're not necessarily mm. uh, scholars. And, and so you were, you, Bob Silvers was a genius. Yeah. And he would tell you, you've got to reach this educated reader. And so you mm. had to write in such a way and that was wonderful training. Was it? It was good help for you, and and uh, you see that in your writing now. Yeah. Well. Yeah. yeah. I think. Well. Although he picks people just because he likes the way they write. Mm-hmm. He did pick people. I mean, uh, yeah, whether the, his successor will be as successful, we'll see. Yeah. Um, but Bob was a genius. Uh, that journal. Uh, so was, in those uh, so in those reviews, what was your goal in those reviews? To make you, well. First yeah. of all, I wanted to explain the book. I mm-hmm. you, you don't want to write a review that doesn't. <laughs> tell you what the book is about but at the same time because you had 4,000 words to work with 5,000 words to work with you could build a context for the book yeah and you you felt like you wanted to make a kind of an analytical argument right of course and you wanted to but you also had to have it readable and Mm. make sense to a an educated but not a scholarly reader Mm. and that is I think uh, what at least I I I I find myself blessed because I had to do that. Yeah, and uh, that. Became, so, are you still writing for the review then, or are we not? Uh, well, sure yet, you, you wait until I have the new uh, yeah. editor hasn't yeah. asked me to. They, they haven't reviewed anything right. that. Uh, yeah. But who knows? I mean, he'll have his own uh, uh, people in his uh, his collection of of yeah. writers. But they seem to be doing some of the same older people. A lot of Englishmen. Because Englishmen, and Bob Silver's always thought they wrote better than Americans. <laughs> but I don't know whether that, they're, they're trained to, uh, to, to write to a general public in a way that we aren't. Yeah. But, uh, but somehow he just plucked me out. Mm-hmm. This is 1980 or so. So the first review I did. Oh, wow. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. We'll have more of this interview with Gordon Wood in a later episode. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.